From the pages of the Salt Lake Tribune, straight to your earphones, this is Tribune Sports Radio. Welcome to episode 47 of Tribune Sports Radio. I'm your host, Ben Raskin. With us today is uh, digital editor of the Salt Lake Tribune, Kevin Winters-Morris. Hey, man. And uh, it's kind of a rare treat because one of my favorite writers for the Tribune is with us today. Uh, he's sports columnist, Kurt Craigthorpe. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Benny. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. Um, you know, when we're kind of putting together guests and ha- kind of rotating in some of the uh, writers that work for the newspaper to come here to sort of tell their story and kind of maybe give a sense of what sports writing for them means in Salt Lake City... Uh, I guess a great starting point for you is like, when did you come to the Tribune and uh, how was that Winter Olympics for you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, I actually started at the Deseret News in December of 1982. I was there for not quite eight years and then came over to the Tribune in August of 1990. So I'm coming up on my 25 year anniversary. Holy Toledo. Years. So it's been a long time. And then Right in the middle of that period, basically, I was the sports editor for nine years, which pretty much took me out of the writing part of it. So I, I kind of think of two distinct segments of uh, my Tribune part would, career, which would be the writing part and the middle management part. Uh-huh. So we in that sense, I've I kind of had... Uh, I've had a second phase, if you will, for the last 13 years of just being strictly writing, which mm-hmm. is definitely more fun. It's Well, it's got to be fun because we've only been in the same area a couple of times working on stories together, and once as we were covering the Salt Lake Bees, and then you went out there. I forget who you were trying to write a story on at the time, but um, I remember you kind of directing the conversation to me. It's like, do the gamer, but I'm going to be working on X, Y, Z. You know, it's like there has to be so much freedom of being a columnist. You know, like uh, where do you kind of – where do you see the stories? Like, how do you develop a story for the uh, for the newspaper? Yeah, it's kind of tricky in, in that regard. I've thought a lot about this, and one thing that's made it more complicated is the fact that game stories no longer just talk about the game mm-hmm. as they once did. And, and so we're asking our beat writers to be more of analysts and commentators and, and give the game some context, which is kind of what the – traditional columnist role was so it becomes a little more difficult to to go beyond that mm-hmm. uh and find what my niche is and I, I specifically remember the case you're talking about there was a pitcher named Jarrett Groob who had yeah 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 gone up to the Los Angeles Angels and made his major league debut and it was kind of a cool story because Mike Socia and the pitching coach Mike Butcher had kind of made this special effort just to get him into the game and mm-hmm. and I remember talking to him about his story of pitching that one inning in Oakland and giving up a two-run homer but it was still a great experience for him so so that was a case where it was I had such a well-defined idea of the story I wanted to do that day that that it, it, there wasn't any conflict with mm-hmm. you in terms of writing the game story but but other times, uh, but particularly when we have, we have multiple writers at, say, a youth football game or something, it does become a, a bit of a tug of war to, 
determine who's going to get which angle. Well, I, I was able to get hired on here because Daniel White wasn't paying attention. I start with that being number one. And the second part is that I had a blog, you know, and I just wrote a blog and it was just a human interest blog that covered life behind the bar, life living in Salt Lake City, what sport teams, whatever kind of caught my fancy. But, you know, in the same, I always treated writing the blog like being a columnist, you know, and I would say how I kind of approached the stories where you almost wanted a three-part narrative in every single one and then hopefully end on a punchline and stuff like that. And so when I look towards columnists like yourself and like Gordon Monson and stuff, it's like there's a lot, there's so much freedom that goes into that. It's always, uh, it's like, do you ever feel there's a competition between the bloggers out there who are not associated with the newspaper or affiliated with any news source versus what you do with the newspaper? Yeah, I, I do think that it, it fits into this larger context of just that there's so many voices out there that it it is harder for the traditional media to have kind of the same presence mm-hmm. that we once did. I, I mean, it just it just goes back to the the age old thing that you you had to pick up the Tribune off your driveway in the morning to find out what had happened the night before, basically, and then to get any further analysis. And, and now there's just so many ways to, to get that information or opinion that you're looking for. So yeah, I, 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 I just think in a, in a very basic sense that uh, 50 years ago, John Mooney, the famous sports yeah. editor of the Tribune, w- was the number one voice in the state of Utah. And I, I just think that that position has basically been diminished in a lot of ways just because as I say there's so many voices out there it, it's we do have a certain credibility that goes with the yeah, yeah, yeah. Tribune masthead but but it's just not what it once was it's weird is that with that saturation because you know, opening day started yesterday and I'm a big Padres fan and you know they lost to the Dodgers in the eighth uh, eighth inning and um as you're looking, as you're, I was just, I didn't have a chance to get to watch the game, but as you're looking up all the facts and figures, even from the Padres site, the Dodgers, Dodgers site, LA Times, you know, ESPN, you start doing this, it, there's such a saturation with it that basically all I know is that the Padres lost six to three yesterday, you know, and then today they're going at 705 and, you know, Shea Ravine. I mean, is it's not that we can actually, you know, we can't put the genie back in the bottle with this, but what do you think uh, separates, you know, from what you do and what the Tribune does versus not the bloggers? And, and, I, and honestly, I'm not talking smack on bloggers. You know, I think there is definitely a role for people to be able to contribute to the conversation, but sometimes it just, I hate to hammer that word again, but sat, it's saturated. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And, I, and you make a good point. I, I mean, for example, there's some bloggers and sites that cover the Utah Jazz who have done a terrific job this year. Uh, the, the Salt City Dunk, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, th- those guys are immersed in it, and they, they do do a good job. So I, I would do nothing to diminish their role at all. But, I, but, I, but I, it's, it's simple uh, volume and, and competition that just, it just makes it more difficult for the, the Tribune to kind of have that aura yeah. that it once did. I, th- I think that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, well, moving kind of to more specific stuff like this, we uh, were talking last week with Kyle, that, and the two of you were down in Houston last week covering the Sweet 16. Um, uh, what, what was like? What was this Utah run like for you this year? And uh, how many Sweet Six, uh, how many uh, NCAA tournaments have you been a part of? 
And uh, how did this one stack up against some other ones? Yeah, well, this was fun for me because I I probably literally saw more Utah basketball games this year than any time in history, just because of conversions of factors. One that they became this kind of captivating team that was in the top ten or close to it, and particularly in the context of where the program had been the yeah, last yeah. year. So, so interest was was way ratcheted up, and it, you can the simple attendance numbers in the Huntsman Center were much bigger than they'd been in the last few years. So, it was it was a good story and a, and a fun team to watch develop. And to go back further, I actually in that sports editor period that I've referenced, mm -hmm. I missed out on the 98 Final Four. Oh, yeah. And so, in that sense, this was all kind of new to me. I, I covered the Utes in the Sweet 16 in 05 with Andrew Bogut. Yeah. And, and literally, they'd only played in the NCAA tournament one time in the last 10 years, in 09, uh, losing in the round of 64. So, it was all pretty fresh to, and new to me. So, I, I really enjoyed being around that team and seeing how far they could go. And, and I'd been saying for months that the Sweet 16 was exactly what they needed to do to kind of validate mm -hmm. the rise of the program. And it's funny how it works. I, obviously, you're going to end on a loss unless you yeah. win the, the whole thing. And so it's almost like I, I walked out of the arena in Portland saying, Okay, they're probably not going to beat Duke in the Sweet 16. Be, it, it'd be okay with me if they just stopped playing right then. <laughs> but it obviously doesn't work that way. Well, with, well this, as a fact, I don't have very many when it comes to sports, but this one I do know is uh, Coach Chesky. Uh, uh, he has 26 tournament losses in the NCAA. So, you know, I mean, when you think about it, when you really think about what that means, is that he's been to the tournament a minimum 26 times, you know, and uh, – I think just uh, I think showing up, I think getting to the 16th round, getting to the the round of 16 was the important one for the Utes this year, and that anything be above and beyond that is definitely icing on the cake for uh, 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 Coach Larry Kay. Yeah, again, I I thought that was the line of demarcation. I said so several times, and so I uh, there was no shame in losing to Duke, particularly since they went on to win the championship. Now you, the flip side of that is you go back and say, geez, if the Utes had shot any better than 35%, they, they could have beat Duke that night, and who knows what they might have gone on to do. But, again, to, to take a player like DeLon Wright and try to maximize his talent, I think, I think the coaching staff definitely succeeded in doing that and, and revived interest exponentially in the program this year. So... It'll be fun to see where they go from here. This has got to be an exciting time for definitely Kyle and uh, Matthew Piper because, you know, they do this day in, day out with the Utes. But, you know, going into the Sweet 16 also means recruitment for next year. There's just that much more oomph on the back end when Coach Larry Kay is going to be knocking on people's doors. Uh, do you see this to be just a stepping stone to another great year for the Utes? I, I, I think it's, it's – a lot depends on whether Jakob Pertl comes back. Uh, already people are doing their – what they call the way too early top 25s for next year. And, <laughs> and it, I mean, the, Joe Lenardi even had a bracket out uh, with the use of the five seed. So <laughs> I can't wait till next week to see what happens. <laughs> 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 but, but I think that the, the point is the program is back in the national conversation and 
and there's such a great tradition with Utah basketball going back to the 1944 NCAA championship that that it's it's great to to see the program kind of get restored and, and to your point the recruiting thing is is truly impressed me uh in college basketball you can do this mm-hmm. i mean there's literally not one player who was on the team three years ago today yeah. uh who, who who was part of the team this year and, and so you can you can turn over an entire 13 scholarship roster you, you can't do that with 85 football players in three years but no but having what the point i'm getting to is is i never imagined they could recruit as well as they have to to assemble the roster they had in 2014-15 and so i i don't place any limits on the kind of players they can bring in here and uh and bring and fit them into the culture that that larry's created and and so i mean there's still a a certain ceiling at a school like utah you're not going to get five mcdonald's all americans and three guys that are going to go to the nba after their freshman year but that's okay too i i think it's on a little bit on a, it's kind of the Pac-12 version of Gonzaga. I think I, I I was going to make that now. I agree with that. Yeah, be very consistent and 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 be in the at the right around the Sweet 16 level year after year. Well, you know, it's nice with this. You know, with uh, just here in Salt Lake City, with the Utes having such a phenomenal season and the Jazz having an an overperforming season. You know, they had projections at the beginning of the year that they're going to win. What was it like 16 games or? Something in that neighborhood, and then uh, Tony Jones was predicting what forty-one. I think so. Yeah, I think he had forty-one. It's not that far off. No, you know, it's uh, uh, would it, balancing between writing for college, a college audience, and for a professional audience for the Jazz. Uh, which of the two do you prefer? And uh, like compare and contrast the difference of writing styles that you go into when you're looking at the Jazz versus the Utes. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's probably something I should think more about. <laughs> uh, I think in a in a in a very basic sense, I think there's not that much distinction. I think that uh, the expectation for college athletes now is we, we expect them to perform as quote professionals mm-hmm. almost, whether that's right or wrong. I, I suppose there's w- the one thing you might do in in college is put a little more responsibility or accountability on the coaches rather than the players and. Maybe in the NBA you would that switches a little bit, but it's but it's interesting you say that because I I think that covering the Jazz at the state they are right now and kind of covering the evolution of the youths the last couple of years there's been a lot of similarities mm-hmm. and particularly in terms of the coaches and the impact they've had I I think that what Quinn Snyder has done has has been very similar to what Kustoviak has done now obviously he is in a position where he's basically coaching the players that are there as you you can't turn over 13 NBA players, for example, (laughs) but, but I, but I, I do think there's a kind of a comparison and, and what you've seen with the jazz is there's sometimes the role of coaching in pro sports gets diminished a little bit, but clearly Snyder has had a great impact on that team. And, it's what, been fun to watch. What, uh, what do you What do you mean by that? Do you mean like some uh, NBA players are uncoachable, or is it they they are they already ready to go out and play? They don't need a coach. They just need someone to hold the clipboard for them. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's the perception in a lot of ways that that uh, 
the, the, there's only so much effect that any coach can have in a, in a pro sport. But 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 again, uh, this jazz example has convinced me that 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 there is room for coaching, and uh, and that means two things. Number one, and this is Snyder's strength, is player development. Mm -hmm. You've seen players actually get better during the course of this year. It's not, it's and the other part being the X's and O's and he's probably had some good moments and bad moments in, in that regard. But I, I do know this, that it's fun to go to the games and literally watch him coach the team because he is putting his full effort into that. And, and one of his trademarks is that, that he spends very little time yelling at the referees Mm -hmm. which is refreshing in and of itself, but he's, he's channeling that energy into conversations with his players. And then to watch him literally work the time out period has is, is been fascinating as well. We, we sit in those chairs above the tunnel with yeah. just a perfect angle into the, the timeout huddle. And, and that's my favorite thing about a jazz <laughs> game these days is to watch how he manages that and, and uh, I, I, this is in no way disparaging of Jerry Sloan, but I m would remember mm. watching him, and you could kind of just read his mind as you just wanted the timeout to get over with. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd, said, he'd said all he mm. could, whereas Snyder's working that thing till the, the very last second. And It was two, way two different animals, but and from the TV perspective, I love watching Coach Sloan, <laughs> you yeah. know. <laughs> You know, yeah, he right, always yeah. looked like he was uh, that uh, that uh, dynamite wick was about a centimeter away from going off. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, he, and he was effective too. Don't get me wrong, but it it did, it did. Snyder's whole deal is teaching, and he is he's taken every opportunity he can to to help those guys grow individually and, and collectively. And so I I've just really enjoyed watching him work. Do you think uh, the Millers did a really good job in selecting him? Like he was the right candidate for this job, right guy at the right time. Yeah, that's been that's been borne out for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine anybody doing a better coaching job with this team this year. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to think back on a, a year ago or eleven months ago when the hiring process was going on after Coach Corbin. Right, and, and that was interesting in and of itself because the Jazz hadn't fired a coach for about 30 years. <laughs> you were working at the De Desert News when he fired a coach. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 or even – Well, Frank Layton, was Frank Layton even terminated? No, see, that that's – so they, they fired Tom Nasalki, <laughs> yeah. who, who would later say how relieved he was to get out yeah. of that situation because <laughs> the Jazz were so bad in the early 80s. And then – so then Layton took it over for about seven years and, and stepped down and then – Obviously, Sloan for 23 years, which will probably never happen again with any pro franchise. But uh, it's probably him and Coach Popovich. Those are probably yeah. the only, those are the only two that will probably have a run like that in this in modern NBA. Yeah, exactly. So, so regardless of how they filled that job, it was going to be interesting, just because it was literally the first coaching search mm -hmm. they had they had undertaken since the team moved to Utah, <laughs> which is amazing to think yeah. about. And then the whole Snyder thing, I I kind of dismissed him thinking of some of the baggage he'd had at University of Missouri and and just kind of saying to myself he's not really a jazz kind of guy yeah. but I, I give them full credit for for being able to I, I don't know to, if dismiss some of the things that happened is the right word but just to 
to look at the bigger body of work and, and what he'd, he'd done since then to have so many varied experiences from the D-League to the NBA assistant jobs to Russia with the team in Moscow. And he really had done a lot to rehabilitate himself, if that's the word, or just broaden himself. Yeah. And so it turns out to be a pretty inspired hire on, on every count. And I'm just eager to see where he takes it from here. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Russia because, you know, with this hour show, we're trying to hit as many topics as possible. Uh, one of the things I'm always fascinated about are the Olympics, you know, with them coming over here. How many Olympics have you covered? Yeah, I'd have to go back and count. But the, the great the, I'll skip to the middle and say the greatest irony of my career is that I didn't cover the Olympics in Salt Lake City. Oh, really? <laughs> because, as I said, I was in that sports editor window. <laughs> and so I was I – was, it was weird because I'd, I'd be down in our office on Main Street every night during the, that entire three-week period but worrying about other sports. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the jazz stopped playing or the high schools stopped playing or the youths. It sure felt like it, though. And yeah. I mean, And I don't mean that no, disparaging against no, you. I, it's I like that. Yeah, mm. yeah. So it, but the cool thing about having the Olympics in town was just walking out of that building on Main Street every night at 1230 or wh wherever it was yeah, yeah. seeing – thousands of people it was in downtown are you uh, born and raised here in salt lake almost I, I i was born in michigan and but i moved to provo when i was nine okay so i've been around for a long time so but did you go to provo high i did yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but uh, for me the for me there's a mason dixon line for people who live in utah and unfortunately kevin's on the other side of this one it's like you're either here for the olympics or you were not i moved here in 99 and so I had, you know, my own Olympic experience working downtown and stuff like that. But uh, did, were you able to go to any of the events, or were you literally chained to a desk during those, those yeah. 17 yeah. days? Yeah, almost literally chained. <laughs> uh, but again, I, I felt like I got the experience just from milling around with people every night. Mm -hmm. I, I literally would take laps around the, the block yeah, just, yeah. To, just to get that feel. And just I to soak just, it in, yeah. Yeah, and so that, that was I, – I, I count that as a, a positive Olympic experience, even though I literally did not go to any events during that time. I'd gone to some test events at the bobsled park, just kind of see what it was going to be like. But, but yeah, so so I'd gone to the Nagano Olympics to help prepare prepare our staff for the 2002. Mm -hmm. And then, well, what are some impressions about the Nagano Games? Uh, was that the uh, year that uh, what's her name took the pipe, the pipes? Uh, Nancy Corrigan. Was that the Nancy Corrigan? No, year? that would have been Lily Hammer. Oh, was that Lily Hammer? Okay. Yeah. So I missed on missed on all that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would I would say the the Olympics is really an interesting thing to cover. It it probably is the one thing you have to do to have any sense of of what you should do or so. I mean continuity and kind of. I'll use the term local knowledge, even though it obviously moves to a different place every time. It, it just navigating the whole Olympic operation takes some practice, and so that. So to answer your question, Nagano is just kind of a blur, just trying to figure <laughs> out how you're supposed to get on the bus to get to, from point A to point B. And so by Sochi, you were you know an old hand at this, and it was a piece of cake. You know. It, 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 or not. <laughs> the irony of Sochi is that, that I was I was so dreading everything that might possibly go wrong and 
and you just heard the, all the horror stories about the security and logistics yeah. and, and what that was going to be like. And as it turned out, I, th I think because there were so many fears about how the operation was going to run, that it, it was by far the most smooth that I've ever been a part of. Yeah. And so that, that was kind of a, a relief in a lot of ways that, that Sochi went as well as it did. And, and the greatest part of that was how close the mountain venues were to the town. Uh, and so it, I, I, I stayed in the, in the seaside town there, mm -hmm. but I, out of 18 days, I probably took the bus up to the mountain venues and back 12 or 13 times. Okay. <laughs> But that that was not a hassle at all, and so I I was just go ahead pleased with that whole experience. It, having been to multiple Olympics now, is it when you're covering them, is it possible at all to enjoy it, or are you just so wrapped up in the next event is this, and I have to get there that you really can't? Yeah, I think if you really discipline yourself or scheduled a, a an intentional break of some time, that that you could kind of experience more I, I would say to, in, to answer your question in general sense that, that that's you come home from all those Olympics and say to yourself okay now where was I <laughs> and, and it's probably the regret is that you didn't get a chance to experience more of the surrounding culture mm -hmm. but, but so it's what I call the blessing and the curse of the Olympics that, that regardless of where it's held you have a certain comfort that it's going to operate the same way, yeah. And so, so that that's where I say the, the the local knowledge, even though it's a different part of the world, mm -hmm. comes into play. That that you know how the system works, but you always come away saying, I, I wish I did gotten more of the cultural experience. Now, Michael Lewis, who uh, has covered a lot of the Olympics for the Tribune, now lives in Colorado Springs. But still helped us with the uh, Sochi coverage, even though he had moved from the Tribune. He is known to to take two or three weeks to to stay in the place and travel around and 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 get something out of the <laughs> experience beyond just the games themselves. But my mindset has always just been to to get back home because th th those three weeks feel like three months in a lot of ways. But so, yeah, I mean, my classic story about that is that the the Black Sea was about two blocks from our oh, wow. apartment where we stayed. And, and and again, the irony of the whole Winter Olympics in Russia was it was like 60 degrees. Yeah, it looked beautiful on <laughs> yeah, TV. It, looks, it, it looked lovely. It, yeah, it looked and, like San Diego, to be yeah, honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> and I was relieved about that. Because, yeah, I, I don't like to be cold. Well, you're living in the wrong state for that. <laughs> yeah, well, although it's getting warmer. Uh, yeah, thank but, you, global warming. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, my, my story was that, I, that I, w I was there one more day after the Olympics because it's really hard to get out of the, out of the airport the, the day after it ends. And so I took that walk down to the Black Sea and just sat on a bench and looked over the ocean and said to myself, now, wait a minute, was this here the entire time? <laughs> It's probably just as well that I didn't make that discovery. <laughs> as it, okay. Over the years of covering the Olympics, who are a couple of the the athletes that were your favorites or maybe stood out the most? 
whether they were and, and I know you have an encyclopedic knowledge of Utah people so it doesn't have to be Utah people Kurt yeah uh, that's interesting to look back on and, and it's, it's I mean I, I it's hard to even think beyond the most recent ones sometimes because again there's this there's just nothing you cover for 17 days in a row that that you're just so immersed in it's got to be equi- equivalent to covering a presidential election you know yeah, like the, the I, last three weeks before the general election I, th- I, th- I think that probably is a pretty good comparison actually because the only difference is you're just you're trying to get to multiple places in one day mm-hmm. I think that that t- makes it a little more relentless otherwise but yeah good question Kevin I I, I think of I, I guess what it, what you do think of is the people that are in multiple Olympics yeah uh, like the Apollo Antonono's yeah. and the Michael Phelps and yeah, the and when he, I, I, Usain Bolt whenever I hear the name Lindsey Vaughn I think of her as Lindsey Kildow yeah. before she was married and and uh just how how she got injured in the training runs in Italy in 2006 and came back and competed, and uh, and then all those years later to see to see what she became. Mm-hmm. So that that'd probably be the most uh, resonating is is those those multiple Olympians. Uh, just because you you do feel like you have some some prior. Yeah. association with them well let me ask you this because if we're let's say with the duke ute game there's a storyline there you know you can cover through vis-a-vis the gamer we could talk about jacob or we could talk uh you know we, we could find an angle with the player and because you're watching the entire event but when you're covering super g like what you, if even if you're on the mountain looking at it you know it's a you know that's all yeah. you you get one turn it's like you own one corner at like the indianapolis 500 uh, how does where do you find the story on that or where is that has to be all feature driven isn't it it is and, and you make a great point and i and i came home from sochi telling myself that i'd learned a lot and was going to put it into practice and so i'll explain what i mean in, in the olympics you're not you're not worried about the, the coach okay the coach is never the Fair. story Except if it's gymnastics, uh, gymnastics for some yeah. for some reason they've put themselves into yeah. the story every single time. Yeah, but uh, but uh, but so often in, in terms of covering, uh, say a college team or a pro team, you you tend to focus a lot on the coach, and 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 maybe the program mm-hmm. and kind of what what it means in that context. But what the Olympics forces you to do, and again, I I need to apply this more to other coverage is. You're talking about the athlete and his or her family, yeah. and there are great stories to be found within that small framework. Mm-hmm. And and so to answer your question, uh, yeah, I, th- I think back on all all the athletes we really focused on in in Sochi, and again, as Kevin mentioned, it's it's mostly Utahns, but there's this. These people like Ted Ligeti, the skier, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Noel Pikes Pace, the skeleton racer. That that we we felt like we knew them, and so there was a lot to be told about their stories. And it's kind of the flaw of Olympic coverage that y- y- you kind of think that they just 
show up every four years. Have, <laughs> that's all they do. Yeah, and, they work at Home Depot for yeah, three and a half. That's yeah. what the commercials taught me. <laughs> exactly. And so, but to my point, uh, you, you, you do have a, a lot of background knowledge about these people, and so, so it, it just enables you to put that in some kind of context when they whatever their performance might turn out to be. And like in Noelle's case, everything she'd gone through to get a silver medal in the Olympics, we knew that story intimately. And so there, there's just plenty of material to go around yeah, that yeah, way. And so, so what it made me say to myself is I, I got to come back and do the same thing with college athletes, high school athletes, hmm. and, and pro athletes. But it's, it's funny that you just tend to think more about coaches in football and basketball than, and not focus enough on the players. So I, I constantly try to remind myself, but it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to do. Well, it's, I would, you know, but as someone who's, I've written a lot of preps and, I, and I'm very, very, very little college and, and only pro with the, the B's and stuff is that the access with the preps is, is outstanding, you know, with the, both the athletes, the parents friends and then you I mean you have such a great intimate base to start drawing stories upon that the coach becomes almost a secondary where you want to pull quote just to say hey that's a heck of a kid right there you know but when we start every uh, level that you start ascending past preps it seems like you're going through almost like you know sports information services and coaches and restrictions to the athletes you know I mean within the Olympics it, uh, do you get that access like you do when covering preps or is it more akin to covering like a major league team I would say it's somewhere in between. Okay. I, it, the, the Olympics is a kind of a unique thing in that uh, they have what they call the mixed zone. The, I'm sorry, the what? Mixed, mixed, M-I-X-E-D uh. zone. Oh, well, mixed zone, okay. Yeah. And it's a hard word to say, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a delicious smoothie, a uh, mixed zone. <laughs> and so you're kind of stand, like standing behind a rope, mm -hmm. but – but it's impossible for the athletes to exit the venue without <laughs> walking past you, which is kind of a good thing yeah. when you think about it. Now, they're, they can be in, in various emotional states that yeah. change the whole dynamic. But the, the, but the fact is they, 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 ha they can't get away from you. I mean, they can theoretically bulldoze you. Walking, you never <laughs> stop. Yeah. But so those are – it's those there are limitations to that, but there's but there's kind of mandatory access mm -hmm. in that sense. And then uh, you know obviously we're beholden to what how much they want to participate. Yeah. And obviously, and for the medalists, they do have more formal press conferences and and some one on one opportunities beyond that. But I but I would generally say that. The Olympic access is pretty good. Well, uh, I was going to ask this when Kevin was asking your favorite athletes. I'm more interested, like, what's some of the favorite sports you get to cover? Like, uh, if I had to power rank the three things I'd want to see, curling, just curling for Kevin. But after that, uh, it'd probably be the indivi uh, individual sports like figure skating and then I uh, ice hockey. There's got to be two of the more That's interesting ones. Well, individual. No, I meant individual right. would be the okay. figure skating, and then the oh. team sport would be. Right. I'd want to see the hockey players, you know, okay. because you get kind of a really good scope on it just for the winter games. Uh, but I'm going to ask you for both the winter and the summer. What which are the sports you've enjoyed covering? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned hockey and the NHL being something that we don't have here in mm -hmm. Salt Lake City, and 
so I, I, I've known for, for hi, being hyper-local focused uh, in, in any coverage, but particularly the Olympics, but in Sochi the, and to a, a lesser extent Vancouver as well, I, I said to myself, okay, the one present I'm going to give you <laughs> is that you can cover some hockey, even though there's no Utahns involved. Yeah. And so the, I, I really – so between those two Olympics, I probably saw three U.S.-Canada games. I oh, guess. wow. Yeah, and they were all epic. Uh, and then I saw the U.S.-Russia game. With, nice. Uh, what's the guy from St. Louis – uh, Oshi, right? Yeah, TJ Oshi. Yeah, yeah. good pull. It's, it, hey, it, it's a hockey thing. No, 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 no. It's a good pull, Cab. I'm just, just <laughs> yeah. take the compliment. Take the compliment. Yeah. <laughs> I, I should have remembered that because I, I, the one local angle I invented on that. <laughs> he had played for Dave Checkets, who owned the St. Louis Blues. Nice, nice. And I'd actually talked to TJ at, in St. Louis one time when I was doing a Checkets story. So. But anyway, yeah. So so hockey, probably, like I say, that that was kind of a, a bonus mm-hmm. opportunity. So uh, I I really do think that hockey is the best sport in the Winter Olympics. Agreed. I couldn't agree more on that. Yeah, just because uh, it, it the, the so so much, particularly when you have a host country like Canada and mm-hmm. Russia in the last two yeah. examples. Uh, where the hockey team success or failure was going to determine how people in those countries remembered those games. <laughs> and, and so Vancouver was a success and Russia was a failure. Just and, and, you know, here that. in the United States, we took silver in 2002, but that, you know, didn't destroy our economy. You know, it's, <laughs> or the social zeitgeist yeah. wasn't con- exactly. deconstructed. Yeah, so I, I, I really, really enjoy the hockey. Uh, summer... Uh, that's now uh, the answer in 2016. If I get to go, oh yeah, will be golf. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure that Joe Baird knows this, but, but if he sends me to Rio, <laughs> he's going to get four days of golf. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I can almost justify that by the first time golf's been in the Olympics since. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I have to stop and think. I, I think uh, on TV. You know what? In, in, this is funny. Okay. The, the irony: my favorite sports in the Summer Olympics were baseball and softball. Oh yeah. And they're gone. Oh, they're. Yeah. And so yeah, I. Do you think they should have dumped baseball? Because softball, I think, is a tragedy. They got rid of softball. Oh, yeah. Softball is in in, in 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 terms of games watched. There is nothing better than great softball teams going at each other. You yeah. know, between the pitching and just to, to yeah. how they play. The, the problem was that there's basically only two and a half good countries in yeah. women's softball. Yeah. So I can kind of understand it from that standpoint. But I, I that was a. It's only two and a half good countries in cross country skiing, but we let yeah. the Finns and the Swedes and the Norwegians <laughs> yeah, every year. No, so I, what? What? I don't get that reasoning on that agree. one. <laughs> yeah. So I. So let's. So I was able to, to see baseball and softball in Beijing, and then I missed London. So. Uh, but I. But I. I do think those are, big losses, but those, those actually were my favorite sport. I'm not a big track and field guy. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because. 
it's in, incredible competition. How does it translate? Because I, I assume you've seen it on TV. Uh, I've never been to Olympics minus the 2002 games here, and I saw doubles luge, you know, so to put that in context. Uh, but at home, for me, during the summer games, watching swimming and watching the track and field are some of the best, simply because technology is caught up to the point where I'm in the water with Michael Phelps, you know, and then you see those tracking cams of Usain Bolt where you feel as if you're running side by side with him, you know I mean? Um, I've covered some high school track events, but it's not the same level quite yet. There's obviously there's, it's a one percenter where one percent of the athletes there are just head and shoulders better than the rest. But when you're covering it live, um, do you get a perspective on it, or is it just is it just arithmetic on a board? Yeah, I, I think you make a good point about television coverage, and I and I think you could make the same comment about virtually any sport at the highest levels now. The television coverage is incredible. If I may interrupt at one point, they made Texas Hold'em compelling on TV. That's how good TV coverage of sports can be. <laughs> and, I mean, they, what they've done with the World Series of Poker is remarkable because 12 years ago, people were not playing Hold'em. You know? Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I, 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 think, I think you buttressed my point. It, I, I think in, it's in a very general sense, you, you can't see things at the venue that you do see on television. And so... I, th I think that applies to the Olympics as well as everything else. Now, the other the other tricky thing about covering the Olympics is that you have multiple venues you wish you could be at. Yeah, yeah, day. yeah. And that that's often been the, among the frustrations of of looking back over the coverage and and not. I mean, my job description basically is to to say is to cover the biggest story of the day. Yeah, yeah. That would be nice if you could know in advance <laughs> what that was going to be. Or if we were in a Vegas sports book, it'd be nice if you knew that as well. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, so that's that's often, again, the, the frustration of, of trying to cover the Olympics is is where to be when, and, and it's just inevitable that you're going to have four or five days during the course of an Olympics where you just say, well, I – made the wrong choice what, what was all right taking that point what was your greatest hit and your greatest miss yeah I, I again I just tend to think back about the most recent one and I, I there's probably better examples no this is good this is good in past history but but like the night and I, and I, I can't even there's so all these new sports in the winter Olympics yes aerials related yeah, yeah. So it was one of these new skiing freestyle sports where three Americans men took the top three spots, and yeah. one of them was Josh Christensen from Park City, oh. and and we just didn't anticipate that happening. So I think I was at speed skating where the Americans did horribly <laughs> that night. So that 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 definitely comes to mind. Now one thing that did play in our favor in Russia was with, with the time difference that if, if we literally missed something we, we could recover yeah I remember specifically that happened with uh, gosh uh, I'm, I'm normally really good no <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Park City snowboarder Oh, the the flying tomato. Yeah, no. Oh, uh, no, no, not Sean White, but the oh. Um, yeah, the more the new guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Kotzenberg. Uh, yeah. Kotzenberg. Yeah, I remember. Uh, it was it was it was the day. It wasn't literally the first day of competition, 
the way it worked last time, but it was the first day after the opening ceremony, and I had stayed down in the town to do a couple of different things and, and heard that Sage from Park City had won the snowboarding competition up in the mountains, and I, I just felt crushed that I missed <laughs> that. But what they do with all the medalists is, is bring them down to the main headquarters area to do a press conference. Uh-huh. And in Sage's case, the press conference was 10 times more fun than the actual competition. <laughs> he's, a, he's quite a character. So I was able to recover in that sense. So, uh. But yeah, that, I, that did just kind of reinforce that idea that, that uh, it's, it's hard to choose where to be when. So uh, I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit here. Um, May 2nd, Pacquiao Mayweather is going to be going on. And uh, when you were talking about TV coverage versus being there in person, uh, they had a story that came out. There was two tickets going for the seventh row. And the significance of the seventh row is that that's still in the circumference of TV coverage. So when you're watching the fight, you can actually be seen watching the game. And so... Uh, they're both, uh, not both tickets, but for each ticket, and they're sold as a package, they're $89,000 a piece. <laughs> <laughs> but, now I'm not saying, would you mortgage three houses to go to that and stuff, but uh, are, you, are you a fight fan? Uh, have you been looking forward to this one, like the rest of us? Or, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, re- a good position here. I'm super excited to watch this one, and I also know that it's four years too, after the fact too late, you know. But uh, do you have any thoughts on the Pacquiao fight? I'm not a big boxing guy at uh-huh. all. I'm, I'm barely conversant in it. But, but I was in Las Vegas for college basketball tournaments when they had the big press conference, which actually was in Los Angeles. But, uh-huh. but so I, I'm, I'm definitely aware of it, and I will be aware of it. But uh, I've hardly covered any boxing. Though I can say that I had a chance to see Oscar De La Hoya Ooh. as an amateur. Really? He came to the old Salt Palace and competed in some U.S. versus Russia bouts. Oh, cool! So that was neat. Mm. So, so yeah. So Golden I, I boy. Won't dismiss boxing, but but basically, I I just pay a little bit of attention to it. But I, but I but I do recognize boxing's place in sports history, uh-huh. and I, I know what it once was in this country, and and I will be aware on May 2nd of that mm. fight going on. It is. But it, you don't plan on spending the $89,000 to have your <laughs> on television. That's fair to say. Or the $99 to watch it on his TV. Right. <laughs> it, it would be interesting to, for me to make a list of what I, how many sporting events it would take for me to justify $89,000. <laughs> how many Masters, uh, how many Super Bowls, yeah. I, I actually on on Sunday night I was watching the the Cubs season opener with my wife and um, kind of that say, I, the the issue of if the Cubs made the World Series in Game Seven was at Wrigley Field how much would I pay? Um, was it I do one? Not have eighty nine thousand dollars? Was it one daughter? But <laughs> it I was one daughter. I, I might give up both of them. Oh, both of them. Yeah, yeah, um, and. That's the wife isn't out of the question either. I mean, that's what it's going to take. Um, but I, I think to your point, I think emotional attachment. I mean, yeah. you'd have to have grown up with one of those fighters or something, yeah. literally, right. to right. to have it that mean that much to you, uh, unless. Well, what's what's crummy about how ba- boxing is set up nowadays? Because you know, I mean, you know more about sports than almost anybody in this building, if not this entire state. But you know, it's not 
boxing used to be almost place cards in history for us. You know, you could start back to the Jack Johnson era, move to Archie Moore, move up to Muhammad Ali, move up to Mike Tyson, to the Kitschkos and stuff. Like the heavyweights used to be, we used to know who the champ was all the time. And right now with, you know, three divisions, I'm assuming it's one of the Klitschkos it owned two of the three of the heavyweights, but it doesn't have the same, you know, like we used to know Vander Holyfield was the champ, you know, and I think that's something because uh, for reading purposes, you know, read Norman Mailer, you read George Plimpton, like the, some of the best sports writing is based on two sports or three sports we don't talk very much about, boxing, baseball, and horse racing, you know, and uh, it's, uh, this, the transition has been towards more of a mixed martial arts thing. Are you a fan of the UFC or is it, do you find it repulsive like I do? Yeah, I'd be definitely closer to the repulsive side, so yeah, I haven't embraced that at all, but you make a great point about boxing's place historically. And it is remarkable to think, and you're exactly right, the Red Smiths and... Yeah, Red Smith. And Her White. Hemingway, for gosh yeah, sake, you know? They, they wrote about boxing. And it's, it's funny, uh, Larry Kristoviak actually uses the expression heavyweight fight yeah. a lot. <laughs> and, I, and I just wonder if anyone has any frame of reference at all. Because your point is exactly dead on that... That, yeah, you used to be able to know who the heavyweight champion of the world was just as readily as you would know who won last year's Super Bowl. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it definitely has evolved in a different way. It just and you know, and it, it seems, from my opinion, I don't know if you share this one, but it's after Mike Tyson was, you know, both disgraced and defeated, you know, if, uh, in, both, in both cases, it just didn't have the same gravitas, you know, and there wasn't a compelling figure because, you know, Tyson came on there, just as a brute, you know, and then we were surprised later in life that this brute actually acted like a brute outside of the ring, you know, so there was, it was the level of hypocrisy that we probably all shared. But after that, it just, it kind of fell into like, God bless Lennox Lewis, God bless him, you know, but I mean, he's the most boring fighter I've ever seen in my entire life. And at no point was I going, oh, there's the champ right over there with his dreadlocks, you know, like he just smothered guys, you know, I don't know. I just, I feel like it's, um, this transition towards UFC doesn't offer as much of an opportunity to put historical context because not only these fights happen so frequently, I don't know any of the participants because a guy with a winning record could be 17 and 15. You know, it's not like undefeated heavyweight champion fill in the blank. You know, I don't know. No, I, I, I totally agree with everything you said. Yeah. It, you, in the lead up to the $89,000 question, <laughs> uh, you had said how many masters is, is that the is that the top of the Kurt Cragthorpe bucket list is have you ever been I have been a few times actually have you played yeah. and and I'm a golf guy and so I'm a, it's a little bit skewed in that respect but but I've always said that the, the masters and Augusta National is, is mm -hmm. the, the, the one thing in my life that totally lived up to the expectations really? and was true on multiple visits huh did you get the pimento sandwich absolutely that a boy that is, that is highly overrated oh <laughs> yeah but it's like two dollars and yes. 75 cents or yes. something like that that is, that is definitely a plus <laughs> yeah, so all that all that traditional stuff is, is way cool and, and it never got old i i had the same feeling walking through the gates every time is that disneyland yeah. feeling whereas the super bowl and again acknowledging that i'm spoiled but but I, I, I needed to only go to one Super Bowl to satisfy myself. Yeah. And 
And so the, the, what, the novelty wore off of that. What made the Masters special besides Augusta, you know, the, besides the golf course? And, and besides the fact oh, okay, that it's okay, the most okay. famous no, 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 golf no, okay. course in the world. No, but I mean, Other than that, Kurt. Yeah. You know, we've all had good rounds at even Forestdale, you know. I mean, but what, yeah. makes, what made the Augusta experience yeah. that much more memorable? I think a, a couple things. How dare you, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> Is, it's the only major that's held at the same place True. every year. And so you watch that, and you, to a great extent, feel like you know the place intimately. Mm -hmm. And then to actually go there and realize that you do recognize certain things, but, but yet it surprises you in other elements. Uh, just, for example, how hilly it is. Really? Yeah. It just un unfolds into this big bowl. You kind of don't picture that from... Television well, from but, but from TV, all I see is just this most luxurious lawn, you know, well, yeah, beautiful that, trees. Yeah. I mean, it's it's picturesque on television. And all that is all that is even more spectacular in person. Yeah, yeah. My favorite thing to do would would just be to walk down the tenth fairway, and and that's dramatically downhill for one thing, and but you do you do, and then just go around Amen Corner and mm -hmm. to thirteen and see the azaleas and, and it maybe it's all manufactured to a certain extent but it you, you get the full show every time you go there and and so it's so the combination of uh familiarity and history i mean any golf fan can list 10 famous things that have happened on a certain hole yeah for example over 80 years. Phil Mickelson and Chichi Rodriguez owning most of those. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they actually have plaques that, that indicate where certain things happened. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so all that tradition is, is, is way cool. So. Uh, well, as we're wrapping this up, then uh, give us your three courses, because you're a Utah guy and you want to bring it all back to Utah. Give us the three courses in uh, Salt Lake City we might find you on a Saturday plane. Yeah, you know, it's, that's a funny story because I, I'm such a creature of habit that the worst, literally the worst thing that's happened in my life is the University of Utah golf course. <laughs> Becoming the medical center? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it, it survived multiple encroachments. Yeah, but all you needed was a seven iron, a, a pitching wedge, and a putter. Exactly, and they were par fours. Yeah, <laughs> so even on the <laughs> made me feel good. But, yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, so I'm still recovering from that closure of about five years ago. But so my basic thing is that I, as that little mm. course proved, that I, I don't require much glamour <laughs> in my <laughs> public golf courses. But I, I'll tell you my favorites right now is Soldier Hollow. It's excellent. Yeah. yeah I just think it's, I, I love any link style course. Very challenging. My traditional answer used to be wing point at the airport. I haven't. I played that a lot when it first opened. Well, you should start playing a lot more of it now before because it yeah, before it closes. Yes. And, uh, and then the third one that I don't get to nearly enough is Valley View in Layton. Yeah. Just a, just a spectacular course. Uh, it, it's worthy of just about any country club. Not only in Utah, but do you like uh, Bonneville? I I do like Bonneville. Uh, 
and again, that kind of fits my definition. It's, it's, there's nothing frilly about it, but it, it's a wonderful public course. Uh, so yeah, in a, in, to answer your question more broadly, it's incredible the public golf course offerings we have in Utah. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, we uh, Kevin and I live close to uh, the Forestdale and just access to Fort. I mean, what seventeen bucks for the pole cart? You can go play the original Salt Lake Country Club. Right. I mean, that's really something. You know, it's a very lucky also to have a state where you can go skiing in the morning and golfing in the evening. So exactly. anyway, uh, Kirk, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, they can follow you on Twitter at Trib Kurt. Trib Kurt. Is that K-U-R-T? Exactly. So uh, and the nice thing about him, I'm not going to screw up his title. If it's sports and it's Utah, he will be the guy who's going to be covering it. And uh, tweet at him. He'll get back to you. K. Winmo for Kevin Winter Morris. I'm at Benny Raskin. Please go to iTunes and uh, subscribe to the show. Rate, review, five-star rating. Kill us in the comment section, poor normal. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. For Tribune Sports Radio, this is Ben Raskin. Our weekly podcast is recorded every Tuesday. Subscribe to the show on iTunes at Trib Sports Radio. And while you're there, Please rate the show and give us some comments to help improve the podcast. All of our reporters' work can be found at sltrib.com. Please follow us on Twitter at Trib Sports Radio. Tweet us questions and the fellows will be happy to answer them. Or if you feel like writing an email, send it to Tribune Sports Radio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.